Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. At times, we experience seemingly daunting obstacles as we go through life, but we can find victory in Jesus. We hope that the message today will equip and inspire you as we go through the series, Overcoming. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, if there is a woman near you, I just need you to look at her and say, you are a gift of God. Thank you. This day is for you. You are special. Do that. Some, something along those lines. Too many words. Say it. Your gift. Wonderful. Oh, I saw some people kiss each other. I hope y'all are married. That was really sweet. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I'm sure they were. That was awesome. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, it is an amazing day. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, and it is an absolute honor to stand before you today in an amazing, amazing day talking about celebrating. What we're going to do is celebrate our women, but we're going to do it in an interesting way. Uh, we've been uh, in a journey through uh, this series of of looking at the reality of some of the mental battles that we face. And this morning, we're going to look at comparison and competition. On Mother's Day? Absolutely. Um, it's going to be so good. And uh, in a minute, um, I'm going to have two amazing women that help lead our women's ministry come join me. And so it won't all be my information, thank God. Uh, there'll be some amazing women that will speak into this as well. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be jumping off from 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses for us, and then we will launch into the sermon. So 1 Samuel chapter 1 says this. Now there was a certain man of um, Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of jo- uh, Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, good names, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, uh, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Thank you, Elkanah. Very helpful. Let me pray, and then we will jump in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we want to um, honor the gift of, of, of our women Thank you, Lord, that you saw that it was not good for us to be alone, and so you brought an amazing, amazing partner in life and in work, um, someone alongside to to help us. And every woman in this room is is a gift from the Lord, so thank you, Lord, for every one of these women. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts so that we might see... Um, 
how you have uniquely made each one of us. And Lord, we don't need to compare, we don't need to compete. Um, We can have value because of created intent and nothing that we produce. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, you would open our hearts, and that each person would feel honored today because of your work, because of our relationship with you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a 10-year-old son named Micah, and, uh, and I've begun uh, from a young age teaching my young son how to do things. And so I've taught him uh, how to do sports, like how to you know, play tennis or play basketball or play soccer. And most recently, we're venturing into baseball, which is well beyond my capacities as a, as a teacher. So I'm asking other dads to come help me do this to him. Um, but I've also taught him how to play different games, whether it's chess or cards or whatever else. But, but there's a very real difference. I have four children, but there's a very real difference between how Micah approaches learning a particular game or skill and how uh, my, my daughter, Peyton, my oldest daughter, Peyton, approaches the same thing. When Peyton is asked, like, how do you play uh, to teach this, this game or this skill? What Peyton asks is this question, what are the rules? Okay, so she wants to know the boundaries of how to play. Micah asks a very different question. His question is, how do you win? Which is great. I mean, I remember teaching him how to play chess, and his first question was, okay, Dad, how do you win this? Okay, when I teach him how to play tennis, where we're going to go out there and hit, he goes, okay, yeah, 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 this is great, this is great. How do you win? And it's a very different approach to life. And it plays out in so many different ways. What are the rules? That's, hey, what are the boundaries that I operate in? But how do you win is a different question. It's, it's how do I beat you? How do I, how do I make you cry? Like, it's a very different <laughs> approach to the game. And, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm more like my son than I am my daughter in this instance. I am a competitive person by nature. Um, I don't just want to play. I like to play to win. And some of you can relate to that. There is a, a reality of competition that comes with all of us, and in a comparison as well. Um, but here's what's, what's interesting. Comparison, comparison is it looks at what you have, and competition says, but I want to be better than you. Comparison is I look at what these other people have and then competition is, and and because of that, I want to be better than you. And it creates something within all of us, men and women. This is something that affects all of us. And Proverbs 14.30 has a great word to us, and it says this, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. When we talk about comparison and competition, at the root of all of that is this other thing called envy. envy. And and there's something within each one of us that desires not just to have um, the blessings of God, but just to have more blessings from God than you. There's something within all of us. And we wouldn't say it that way because we know that that's offensive. But there's something within all of us that compares, that contrasts. And, And the reason I'm introing this subject is because as we've been walking through the different mental battles that we face as Christians, as, as how to live the resurrected life, we know that this is one of the challenges. So over these several weeks, we've looked at worry and anxiety. We've looked at loneliness and isolation. And today, in our third kind of installment of this series, we're looking at comparison and competition. And in order to kind of set this up well, we're going to look at it from a particular angle. We're going to look at it at how comparison and competition affects are women. And so, and so men, this is something that we can uh, understand and be supportive in. 
But even as we talk about these things in regard to um, our women in particular, no, men, you're not off the hook. You do this too. And so in order to talk about it in this larger context of, of women in particular, we're going to look at first the value of womanhood, the challenge of comparison and competition, and then how to overcome comparison and competition. And to set this up, this first part of the, of the sermon, I'm going to speak and I'm going to invite uh, Devi and Diane, two women that um, help lead our women's ministry to come up and share alongside me. But I first want to just kind of set up the stage for the value of womanhood. In Genesis 2, we see the woman created. And the first thing that God says in Genesis 2 as he's looking at man is he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Men, it is not good for us to be alone. If we were just us in the world, it would not be as good as it could have been. There is something uniquely beautiful that a woman brings into the environment and the context. Amen? There's something amazing that women bring. And so in this moment when it says that Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone, he starts bringing creatures to him. And each creature he bring, that is brought to Adam, you know, he's bringing like a, an aardvark, he's bringing a you know, rhino, I don't know what all he's bringing, but he's bringing these animals to him, and, and each one of them doesn't quite match him. Each one of them isn't quite as helpful as it needs to be. It's not a, and the language here is help, is helper suitable, and that's, that's the word azer, helper. And as soon as I say that word azer or helper, many of you women are just like, oh my gosh, I'm a helper, which sounds completely diminutive. It's, it's like, uh, it feels, it's not true, but it feels in some ways like, oh, you're my little helper to do what I'm called to do. But that's actually not how the word is used in scripture. The word is used in 21 times in the Old Testament, that word azer. The majority of the times that word azer is referring to the Lord. So let me give you a couple of those verses. In Psalm 21, it says, Psalm 121.1, it says this, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where shall my help come from? Verse two, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. That word azer, God calls himself. His help that he's crying out for is help from the Lord. Psalm 124.8 says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 33.29 says this, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. That word help, azer, refers to God as, as the one who is the protector, the, the shield of your help and the sword of your victory. He's saying this is, is what help looks like. It's not someone that, that is uh, diminutive and not really valuable that you're really helping. It's someone who is strong. It's someone that's really, in many ways, a warrior alongside Adam to help accomplish the purposes that God has set. So as you think about the women in our world, they are not there to just help you do your ends. They are a co-laborer. Adam could not accomplish the purposes of God without this person right beside him. There's something really special about women that we are missing when they're not here. They're a shield they're their azer. First Peter 1 Peter 3 says that, that women are co-heirs of Christ. So they're co-heirs. They're an heir with you in regard to what God has for us. And so women, you are, you are a 
warrior. You're a shield to protect. You're also a co-heir with Christ, or with us in Christ. But also we see some very specific things um, from this text in 1 Samuel that Hannah brings to the picture. There's some interesting things that are very helpful to see about Hannah in this moment that you may not realize, but I think this is really helpful. The first thing that we see from Hannah in 1 Samuel is that she is a woman of powerful faith. Powerful faith. At the time that the nation of Israel was, was under a period of judges, and those judges ruled uh, not well. It was a very rough time in the period of judges. And here's what one commentator writes of Hannah's faith. Hannah's faith turned the tide of the period of judges by producing the transitional figure Samuel. The true power is not to be found in one's position in society, but in one's posture before God. We see a woman of deep faith who had powerful faith that helped change the course of this nation. We also see that this woman was powerful in prayer. Three times in her prayer, we're not gonna study it in depth, but you can read it on your own. She prays and calls herself the servant of the Lord. And she uses this phrase. She calls God Lord Almighty, which is the first time in the Old Testament that that designation is given to God. So this woman is in many ways a theologian. And this commentator writes that out of her pain of not having a child, she becomes a deeply theological woman. And also her, her prayer in 1 Samuel is the longest prayer recorded in 1 Samuel. So there's something beautiful about this woman that she brings into this moment. But there is a conflict here. There's a conflict in this situation that's introduced to us. There is value to womanhood. But if we're honest, there, there is some conflict, some challenges that are unique to women. And it says in several times in this section that um, Elkanah had married two women. Now, let me just take a moment to describe this. Um, that was not um, given by God as something wise to do. Some commentators would say the fact that, uh, that there was multiple, a husband had multiple wives in the Old Testament is, um, is not frowned upon by the Lord. But just look at when any man marries multiple women in the Old Testament. Every time it goes poorly. Every time. So look at Abraham, did not go well. Look at David, not happy. Look at Solomon, the king, multiplied ridiculous number of wives. Every single time, you're like, this is bad. And if you're reading the Old Testament saying, hey, it seems to be fine, you're not reading the details. Like every time, it goes poorly. And it sets up this very tragic scenario in this moment where it says that he had two wives and there was developed a rivalry between these two women. A rivalry, that word rivalry could means distress, affliction, um, adversity, anguish, tribulation. It creates this rival situation in which these two women are then fighting and comparing and competing with one another. And one wife was loved more, Hannah, and she was given a double portion each time they would go to offer a sacrifice. And Penina, who was able to have children, she would, she would put herself in a position to put Hannah down. It was a bad situation of comparison and competition that was set up in this relationship. 
and her, the husband, Elkanah, poor man, he didn't quite know how to help. I mean, read verse 8. It says, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? One commentator, Robert D. Birkin, said this. I think it's so helpful. Hannah's good-hearted but insensitive husband, Elkanah, attempted to console her, suggesting to her that he was better to her than ten sons. Elkanah, you don't get it. (laughs) And sometimes when it comes to particular struggles that our spouse is facing, husbands, men, we may not fully understand the challenges that they're facing. And, and that's a really important ad, ad, uh, admitting of humility, that there's wisdom to walk through particular challenges that our women are facing. And honestly, oftentimes we need wise women to come alongside and speak into our wives, speak into our daughters, so that we can, they can help them grow and navigate these circumstances. And let me just tell you, one of the gifts we have at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball is amazingly gifted women. Amen? And I'm going to bring up two women. Would you give them a hand as they come forward? Uh, DV and Diane. And as, as, as they come in forward, let me, just, let me just tell you a little bit about these two women as I step on things. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about these two women. One, uh, one is they, would you mind, or I don't, sorry. Musical chairs, musical chairs. Um, w- w- one of the things I want to tell you about these women is this. They help lead our women's ministry, which was amazing. I mean, after COVID, we had ground zero of our women's ministry. And these women, along with some other ladies that are here, stepped in and really built an amazing women's ministry. Um, also, they're very gifted communicators and teachers. And so the, the fact that they, we get to share and hear from them um, is a complete blessing and honor to us. And so I, I cannot celebrate and honor them um, any more than, than, I, I, than I do. I'm so grateful for each of you. And so I just want to turn it over a little bit and to DV share. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So uh, I think the story that Kevin read is just such a perfect story in scripture to demonstrate competition and comparison. In Hannah's case, comparison caused her to feel inferior, like she could never measure up. And in Penina's case, it actually caused her to feel superior, like no one else could measure up. Both are equally destructive, but today we're going to talk about that inferior side, because I think that's probably what most of us women deal with. So I read a book recently called, I'm Happy for You, Sort of, Not Really. That's the title. (laughs) Great, great book. It's by Kay Willis uh, Wyma. And she referred to the comparison epidemic that we have right now as the new OCD. She calls it obsessive comparison disorder. And this is how she describes it. The compulsion to constantly compare ourselves with others, producing unwanted thoughts and feelings that drive us into depression, consumption, anxiety, and all-around discontent. And we know that this is not a new phenomenon. We just read a story in scripture Um, And we also could go all the way back to the first siblings and see the struggle of competition and comparison there. So I I do think, though, that we we might have reached maybe unprecedented levels at this point because 
We used to have just our sphere around us to compare ourselves to, but now we can sit in our homes and compare ourselves to people all over the world. And so that can be quite dangerous. Um, working in the corporate world, world for 18 years, there's two words that I've heard repeatedly over and over again, curating content. I work in the sales training department, and what we do is we take, we find out there the best of training that we can find, and we curate it all and put it all in one place on a virtual platform so that our sales force can go and access the best training out there. I never really used those words in my personal life, but now it's very relevant to our personal lives, and I hear those two words, curated content in sermons, and I read it in books now, and I hear it, or I read it in articles all the time, and it's because that's exactly what social media is. It's everyone taking the best of their lives, curating all of that content, and putting it in one virtual platform that all of us get to go to, and then compare ourselves to. And what we're doing is, normally we compare the worst of ourselves to the best of what we're seeing on that screen or in the very least, our reality to what is not reality. So uh, I was on Instagram the other day and a suggested page popped up for me. And it was, I clicked on it um, and it, I could tell it was a home decor type thing, so I clicked on it. And it was video after video of a girl that cleans her house, decorates her house, that's all. That's all she does. Video after video of cleaning her house, decorating her house, organizing things. She doesn't ever speak, it's just music over a video of her doing this to her home. Her home is, from what I can see, is almost all white and light gray. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I'm watching her steam clean her refrigerator. I'm not, thank y'all. <laughs> that makes me feel so good, because I thought, does everyone steam clean their refrigerator? <laughs> And so I'm looking at myself going, I, not only have I never steam cleaned my refrigerator, I've never thought to steam clean my refrigerator. But that's what we're comparing ourselves to. Never mind and not thinking that she has, okay, are you ready for this? 912,000 followers. Almost a million followers. Probably mostly women, if not all. And they're going through this content and constantly comparing this, this um, thing that's not reality to their own reality. And I have to say, with that many followers, she's probably making over 100,000 a year doing this, so this is her full-time job. Mm -hmm. And then we compare what we have to that. Another one I saw that I thought was extremely fascinating, we see a lot of this now, and we have to be very, very aware of this. I was watching a girl, she's redoing her kitchen, so she's showing videos of, as she remodels her kitchen. And she started that morning, it's a video of her face talking to the camera, and she says, I woke up this morning with allergies flaring up, so my eyes are very swollen, and they're bloodshot, and my face is puffy, so I'm using a filter. I'm looking at a perfect face on a video. She looks absolutely perfect. And I'm comparing my wrinkled face <laughs> to a digitally altered image. And boy, oh boy, is that so dangerous, especially for our young girls these days, because we are losing sight of what's real. 
And I wish I could say that it's only social media, but then we watch movies that feed us the lie that life is perpetually romantic. And we look around ourselves and we look at our homes and our jobs and our husbands and our kids and we think, I'm not quite measuring up. So if we got rid of social media and we got rid of the television, we still couldn't get rid of competition and comparison because we even do it in the church, Mm. right? Has anyone ever looked at your spiritual gifting and someone else's and felt like yours was a little inferior and maybe wanted theirs? Mm. I think that's very com. Thank you, Kevin. I think (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. very common. We Mm -hmm. all do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and maybe, and if you think about this, maybe we cannot even recognize our own gifts that God's given us because they don't look exactly like hers mm. or hers. And even when we recognize our own gifting, we can render it useless to the kingdom of God when we desire someone else's. Mm. But in reality, your gift is special, given by God to you for your good and for the glory of his kingdom. Mm. And we know a quick way to uh, ruin something special is to compare it to something else. And that's what comparison does. Comparison causes dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction causes an ungrateful heart. And an ungrateful heart manifests itself as complaining. When I was really early on in my faith, at my end of my 20s, probably a couple years, maybe three years into it, I started studying the attitudes of the Israelites as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And boy, oh boy, was that eye-opening. Two things really hit my heart very hard. The first thing is, oh my gosh, I see so much of myself in them. That's a hard reality. But the second thing was, and this kind of, this surprised me, is how personal God took it. I'm gonna read Numbers 11.1. It says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed the outlying parts of the camp. And I thought, why why did he take it so personal? But as I studied and I kept reading and kept studying, I realized that their complaining, my complaining, our complaining, is really saying to God, nice try, but it's not quite good enough. That's what they were saying. Thank you, Lord, for the manna, but it's not quite good enough. And it's so easy for us to see the error of their ways, but that's exactly what we do. Thank you, Lord, for this provision, but it's not good enough. And we do that with our complaining. We do it with our homes. We do it with our, our hair. We do it with our clothes we wear. Um, we do it with the gifts that he's given to us. We also can do that with um, trials that God brings in our life to shape us and form us into the image of his son. So uh, no wonder God takes it personal because that's what he's hearing. It's not good enough. It's just not good enough. So um, the opposite of complaining, a complaining heart is a content heart. And that's what we all want. Um, Diane and I were talking this week about this, about how do you get that? And her and I are both in the back half of our life now. And so we hopefully have some wisdom. Um, And we were talking about if we could talk to our younger selves at this stage in our life, what would we say? So I'm going to hand it over to Diane for her to impart some wisdom on us. Okay, so when we first started talking about this, I thought, you know, you see it on TV. Successful people 
write their letter to their younger self. Well, you know, we don't have to be successful or important to write a letter to our younger self. It doesn't even matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever you are. Well, I'm sitting up here pushing 80, and yeah, so... Um, okay, so you know what? I have a lot of wisdom, but I learned it through a lot of decades of living life and struggling through life and figuring some things out. So. Um, I just want you to know, you know what, if I had some like magic pixie dust I could just sprinkle all over you, I would tell you, and I think everybody out here our age would say, when you get to be our age, you know, uh, life tells you what stuff doesn't really matter anymore. You don't look at life and think, oh, it's my stuff. You don't care about your stuff anymore. The only thing that really matters to you when you get to be my stage and so many of us out here is the physical and spiritual well-being of people. You don't care about your stuff, and you don't care what other people think about your stuff either. So, And you know what? This is Mother's Day, and this is not just a message for women, because every man out there has his own list of comparison and competition. So um, I'm not up here with this message because I learned it when I was young. I wish somebody had sat up here in my life when I was sitting out there at 30 and told me, it doesn't really have to feel that way. And even when I use the word stuff, I'm not just talking about your things that you own. We're talking about everything in your life. You know, what's going on, what's happening. Because I can tell you when I was young, I was comparing myself and my kids and my problems, and I'm thinking, why do they get to fly through life like that, and I get to struggle? You know, because we don't really know the personal interacting things that are going on in everybody's life. So we're comparing, like Dee was talking about, with a filter. So, um, you know, it's interesting because um, I looked at Luke 10, and it's Martha, Martha, but it could be Diane, Diane, or Kevin, Kevin. Uh, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That's really the life that we should be living. So look how Genesis 1 started. Talking about when did competition start? Okay, 1.16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. You know what? Both the greater and the lesser are important. Our life on earth wouldn't work without both the greater and the lesser lights. But they're not in competition. You know, for signs and seasons and directions, it takes the moon and the stars and the sun. And you know what? The moon reflects the light of the sun. We should be worried in our life whether we are reflecting the glory of God are reflecting our own glory. So um, the great God that created us never changes. He is the only thing in our life that absolutely never changes. And when he was in the garden, he said, Adam, don't eat of the tree of the good and evil. Let me tell you what is good. Now, this is kind of how I look at that. So um, if you buy a car, and it's a diesel car, you can only put diesel in the car. Now, in the early 80s, I owned a diesel car. And there weren't very many places that you could buy diesel. 
So I kind of had to plan ahead and know because I could not stop at a gas station and put some gasoline in my diesel car and drive it until I got to a place where I could buy more diesel. It doesn't work that way. And why doesn't it work that way? Because the engineer who designed a diesel car says it will only run on diesel. The engineer who designed it will tell you how to run the vehicle. We had a friend who had a large, new, brand new diesel motorhome and he filled it up with gasoline. That did not end well. <laughs> you know what? In Exodus 20:17, God says, I designed you. I know how you will live the life to the fullest. I engineered you. And this is how you should live. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Hebrew word for covet is very specific. And it actually starts by thinking. God says, don't even start thinking that way because it is not going to end well when you do that. And so many times we think of God's instructions as things that makes God happy. Personally, I think it's just the opposite. I think God's instructions are designed to make us happy because he engineered us, he knows us, he knows how he designed us, and he knows how we will live our best life. So the problem, though, is um, we are given free will. We have free will. We can live God's life to the fullest, or we can bury ourselves in our own desires. And you know what? I don't have any pixie dust, and I can't give you the wisdom of the ages, but I can tell you something. I have one word for us today. And that word is decide. So if you remember nothing else about what I said, just remember the one word, decide. Decide. Because you see, um, God said, this is what I want for you. Now, there should be a verse on the screen, which is Galatians 5.22, and I think most of us know it. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, which is comparison and competition, edited by Diane. If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become concerned, conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. So let me ask you something. Have you ever prayed for patience? Anybody out here prayed for patience? Yeah. I've heard that so many times, but you know what? That scripture and nowhere else in the Bible are we told to pray for any more of all of that stuff. Did you get the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Amen. Yeah, yes, you did. You got it all, it's all there. You already have all the patience of God, but you must decide that you want to use it. You must decide to surrender your own will and decide to do it God's way because he knows you, he engineered you, he knows what's best for you. So when you decide to allow God to shine in your life, 
you can pray to live in agreement with God. Yes, you can pray for more agreement, but not for more of it. You already have all there is. So I can decide to follow God and let this flesh that, that lives within me and demands some attention. We're told that we have a war with the flesh and the spirit. So we don't just get to decide one time. We have to decide over and over and over. But you know what? It is a war of the flesh and the spirit. But look what happens in verse 26 up here when we decide we want to do it our way. Look at the fruit of the flesh. Conceit, provoking one another, jealousy, comparison, competition. Those are not the things that we want. We want the other fruits. But God, those are my favorite two words. God lets me come near over and over and over. He doesn't look at us and go, fail, lose, right? You didn't win. He lets us come back. And so our decision is to surrender over and over and over because we have a war going on. But he invites us to use his power. It's his power, not mine, not yours, his power. And we can do this because he said we could. He told us that and God never changes. He means it. So here's a question we need to ask ourselves. What do you believe about God? So then the next question is, what's your motivation? Why are you doing that? What's that all about? Do you want the praise of men? The woman with a million followers? Do you want the praise of God? You know what God says? It's not how we look on the outside. It's how we look on the inside. It's not... Uh, who we say we are, but it's who God says we are. And it's interesting, it's not how we serve. I mean, it's not how we lead, it's how we serve. It is how we serve, not how we lead. So I'm going to write you what I wish um, my younger self had known. So this is like a letter to myself. Okay. Here's what you really should want, Diane. You should know that the new houses, the cars, and the clothes are only going to give you a temporary high, and the payments go on and on. The new car smell is gone way before the payments are gone, and there's goldfish in the back seat, right? Okay. (laughs) So, a new job. It's exciting, but pretty soon you're going to figure out what's going on with the company and all your bosses and all that stuff. And you know what? All of those things will eventually leave you feeling disappointed and empty, and you get bored easily. So you're going to need something more than what the people in the world can provide. You're going to need to surround yourself with God's people and live the way God engineered you to live. You need to live with enthusiasm. It's an interesting word, enthusiasm. The E-N is like in, and the Theos, it's in God. In the original sense of that word, a person was to be so overtaken with the presence of God that he or she could barely contain their excitement. You know what? That makes sense. The truth of God applied to all of our circumstances should bring us to the place where we have a burst of enthusiasm, even in our struggles, because our God is there. He's there and he's providing for us. 
And you know what, Diane? You won't get bored if you live that way. Here's what happens when you live God's way. He brings gifts into your life, much the same way that a fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affections for others, enthusiasm about life. When we live God's way, we get contentment. We will develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in our heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life. We're able to order and direct our energies wisely. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities, that's killed off for good. It's crucified. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. Now, what I just read you, except for that little thing on enthusiasm there, I just read you our Galatians 5 passage. I read it to you out of the message. Because quite often we get so used to things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, that stuff, and we just write through it. So I like to go and read different translations, and somehow the message inspired me this time. And I really wish that when I was younger, I had known that, and I had lived that, and I had made that the destiny of my life. Um, you know, it's ours. It's already ours. All of that's that good stuff I just read. And that's really what I want my life to look like, and I really think you want that's what your life to look like too. I think we all want that good stuff. So we can either stay in the challenge of life in our flesh, of comparing and um, competition, or we can do it God's way. Because comparison and competition is kind of like gasoline in your diesel engine. doesn't end well. So, Devi, what are you going to say to your younger self? Well, um, so I love the word decide. I love that you brought that in. And I know that it's a process. This is a process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's called sanctification. Um, that's a biblical word for it. But I'm a process-oriented person, so um, I think in steps. And so um, I'm going to share four steps with you guys that we can start doing today to head us down the right road. Number one is decide to pray. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, that's going to be the Christian answer. That's going to be the first Christian answer. Decide to pray. Yes, we know that. Billy Graham said, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Isn't that the truth? Um, so prayer is not, we tend to kind of think that it's positive, passive thinking. That's not at all what prayer is. Prayer is warfare. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And I'm going to read those last two verses out of the NLT. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. 
We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. I love that because when we want to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and false arguments, destroy false arguments, which is exactly what we're doing when we're comparing. We are using our human reasoning and believing our own um, false arguments, like if I had what she had, then I would be happy. And so we need to take back through prayer any ground in our hearts and in our minds that we have allowed the enemy to come in and occupy. And we need to des destroy those strongholds of comparison that we have. And that's going to take a heart change. And only God is in the business of changing hearts. And so we get on our knees and we go to war and we ask God to reveal the areas of our lives where comparison has taken hold and we repent and we pray for genuine change. The first one, we decide to pray, not a little thing. It's the, the most important thing we can do. So number one is really number one. Number two, we decide to refocus. Set, this is Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above and not earthly things. We've been going through a study of heaven in the women's ministry that's been mind-blowing. It's been incredible. So we are to focus on heaven, our final destination. We're to prioritize our life and our thoughts on that fact. We dwell on heaven. Craig and I sometimes talk about what it's going to be like uh, when we get to heaven. We'll actually be able to walk around with each other and have no pain. We're like of that age where you get sore from sleeping. So we are so excited about actually having no pain in our bodies to be able to do that. And I look at my grandchildren and I think, oh my gosh, the energy they have. We're going to have that kind of energy. And so um, we decide to refocus. Matthew 6.19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What orients our lives, what sets our priorities, what determines our decisions and our steps in this life should be the next life, not this one. And if you struggle with that, I would say refer back to step one. Pray. Pray for the mind and the heart that focuses on things that are important to God, and you'll start to see your heart change. So number two was decide to refocus. Number three, here's a big one, you guys. This one's hard. Decide to be grateful. Gratitude is a powerful weapon. So it's not surprising that we're commanded all over Scripture to be thankful. I'm going to read just a few here. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the last one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So that's just a few of many, many scriptures that tell us to be grateful. So um, our circumstances, what we have, what we don't have, what gifts we possess or don't possess, what our houses look like, 
If we're married or not married, kids or no kids, none of that is the determining factor whether you'll experience true joy. It's what's in your heart and mind. It's, what's, it's what you dwell on. And so uh, dwell on things that you have rather than things that you don't. Aren't we so guilty of that? We tend to dwell on what we don't have, but rather we change the inclination of our heart and we start dwelling and thanking God for things that we have. And when you catch yourself complaining, which I still do, I still catch myself complaining sometimes and I'll have to apologize to Craig when I notice that I've done it and my incredibly wordy husband always says the same thing, his favorite two words, uh-huh. <laughs> I love you, babe. Uh, <laughs> I'm the wordy one in the family. <laughs> So um, many years ago, a friend of mine um, had a little boy, I think he was about two or three, it was years ago, so I don't remember his exact age, but he was around two or three, and he got cancer. And they spent weeks and weeks and weeks in, at MD Anderson downtown. And she would post every day on Facebook an update of how he's doing and how to pray for him. But before she did that, she would start every single post with what they were grateful for. She would say things like, we're grateful for hot coffee this morning. We're so grateful for the nurse that brought the warm blankets to us last night. We're so grateful for the attitude of the nurses. And then she would begin to say what they needed prayer for. And that was, that was a huge lesson for me, to see somebody go through something that is so tragic and so hard, but first give thanks and be cultivating a grateful heart even in the hardest of circumstances. So that's what we do. We look for those things to be grateful for. We look for the light that God is shining even in those darkest places. Gratitude is a choice. We can choose to be grateful. And the last one, this was kind of practical, decide to limit temptations. That was a big one for me, especially early on in my walk. Uh, if social media tempts you to compare, limit it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something really radical here, or eliminate it. I have friends of mine who have never been on social media, and they have full lives. Can you believe? It's possible. <laughs> they really are happy, and they have full lives. No social media, never have been. It's okay if it's too much for you. If you find yourself scrolling page after page after page, especially right before you go to bed at night, and if you can't resist it and limit it, then do away with it. It's not worth it. Um, and I promise you, you won't, you won't miss it, even though you think you will. Refuse to feed the bear. And limits, your limits of what you, you can and can't uh, take now will actually change as you grow. Um, I remember when I was very early on in my faith. In fact, it was at the same time that I was studying the Israelites in the wilderness. So three years or so into my faith, I, a friend of mine called me. And she lives a few houses down, and she wanted me to go fabric shopping with her because she was getting custom curtains made. Sure, I'll go fabric shopping with her. So I spent the, the morning fabric shopping with her, and we had lunch with our kids, and then I came home. And all of a sudden, my house didn't quite measure up because everything in her home was custom made, and my curtains were store-bought. And what I didn't even pay attention to the day before became a big thing to me. And I found myself throughout the day getting a little edgy and irritated and didn't even notice that the inclination of my heart was actually changing over something that sounds so trivial. But it doesn't have to be a big thing that we're comparing to get in our hearts and start, uh, start us going down 
in the wrong direction. So um, I went to bed that night when I started praying, my eyes were opened as to what was really causing my feeling of dissatisfaction. And the next day when she called and asked me to go out again to shopping with her, I said, politely said, no, but y'all come over for lunch when you're done. Because at that stage in my life, something that small actually changed the way I was feeling inside. It changed the inclination of my heart. So it's okay to say no. Try to recognize the things that really are triggers for you that make you compare and eliminate those as best you can. So I'm gonna end with a quote here from Max Licato. The past does not have to be your prison. You have a voice in your destiny. You have a say in your life. You have a choice in the path you take. So there's that decide again. We, we can decide what path we're gonna take. Are we gonna choose to have a complaining heart? Or are we gonna choose to have a content heart? The great news is it's our decision and we can start heading down the right road today. So Diane, any further words before we hand it back over to Kevin? Okay, you know, it's interesting because I love to read the scripture. And one of the important things I found out about scripture is there are a lot of people in the scripture and they all come and play their part and they go. Because the scripture is not about those people. The scripture is about our good God that never changes. So I wanna take us back before we end. I wanna go back to 1 Samuel where Kevin started with us. So Hannah's the childless wife and she's reduced to tears and she has no appetite. And then her husband says to her, oh Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? And why are you so upset? And I'm, am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? So Hannah ate, then she pulled herself together and she slipped away quietly and she entered the sanctuary. Um, my dear brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ. Our bridegroom loves us so dearly and he wants us to hear those very words that he would speak to us Am I not of more worth to you than all that stuff? So we must decide to pull ourselves together and slip away quietly and enter the place where we meet with God. That's the only way we're ever going to conquer our desire to compete. And um, it's the only way we're going to conquer our desire for that competition in our lives. And I can tell you, and each of us would say, Jesus is of more worth than all of those things that you're worried about that mean so much. Um, he invites us to do the very same thing, to, to slip away into that place of the sanctuary where we meet with God. And it's the only way we can end well. It's wonderful. Would you have that? Thank you guys so much powerful. Give these ladies a hand. Thank you so much. Um, to, to close out our service, um, we will give an opportunity to respond in prayer. Um, I think you've got some great practical ways to battle against the comparison and competition, although those do apply to women, obviously. Those apply to us all. So thank you so much for that wisdom. Um, our prayer team is going to come forward as our band comes forward. And there may be a couple of different ways that you want to respond personally. One of you, one way to respond, or some of you um, maybe have lost a mother in this season. And this is a, um, just a challenging season for you. Um, 
we believe that the body of Christ can comfort one another and care for one another. And so our prayer team would love to pray for you in that season. Others of you have always longed to be a mother. And so some of you were even questioning, do I even want to come this Sunday? Um, because that, that creates a, a, a very deep wound within you. Let me just tell you, you are, you are valuable. You are loved by the Lord. You are significant because of who you are in Christ, because of who he's created you to be. But if that's a wound within you, we want to pray for you that God's comfort would come upon you and you would be encouraged. You are valuable. Come to our prayer team. Others of you, there's a particular healing that you would want. We believe in a God who heals. So come forward, receive prayer as we close this time together. Let me start that by praying for us. Lord, thank you for each one of the women that are here. Thank you for um, how you have made each one of them, the gifts you had given them, um, the abilities you've given them, the gift that you've imparted by the power of your spirit to each one of them. And Lord, we just say that um, every one of our women is valuable, valuable, and they're valuable to you. Lord, I pray that as we um, think about how to more honor you with our lives, you would give us your wisdom, your peace. And Lord, um, as, as husbands or brothers or or friends, you would give us wisdom as to how to encourage the women you've put in our lives so that they might flourish in all that God has for them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.